Well, Brandon instructed us to tell one another how good God is in this moment, and you did that? Yeah? You did that? Well, I certainly want to do that as well this morning. I was 22, so that's going back a little little ways. I was 22 years old, and I asked the Lord to bring a girl into my life, a really special girl, one that would understand me uh, and would love me and perhaps I could even spend the rest of my days with. And God did that. Gave me Lisa. And this tomorrow will be 36 years that we have been married together. And I just want to say thank you, Lord. You have been so good to give Lisa to me. What a great gift. I've been given. So this is a great day. Uh, Lisa and I are going to head off the hill, get a little time together. We're going to do Disneyland tomorrow. So it's, where else better to go than the happiest place on earth to celebrate your anniversary? Yeah, so we're going to go there. but uh, And see some grandkids along the way as well. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, that isn't what you came for today, I know. So, uh, And there are some in our room who have certainly got more years on Lisa and I than, than the 36 we have. And God's kind to you as well and to all of us who who love him and know him, and he's given us so many good things. And among those is his word, and we get to share his word together as part of our worship of him this morning. So take your Bible, would you please, and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. And uh, if you need a Bible this morning, we can supply you with one in case you got away without your Bible this morning. There's a little note page in your bulletin. would encourage you to find that. And if uh, perhaps you forgot to silence that cell phone, Maybe this would be a good time to do that as well. And church family, our verse-by-verse study series through this amazing book of Galatians, is it's coming to a close. And to borrow a word picture from the world of track and field, this morning we kind of round the final turn, and the finish line now comes into view. There's a long straightaway yet. We're going to run down that straightaway. Uh, In two weeks, though, we will break the tape and finish this book, Lord willing. It will have taken us a total of 18 mornings to get all the way around the track. But unless the Lord Jesus comes back in the next two weeks, which would be a glorious thought, right? We'll finish Galatians in two Sundays from now. And, you know, I wouldn't mind leaving the book hanging at all if it meant that we got to see Jesus face to face, right? Would you be okay with that? All right. But in the anticipation that maybe he'll, he'll continue to wait and more people will be brought into the kingdom, we step into this morning into chapter 6 of Galatians uh, as part of our, our uh, time together. And we're going to make our way all the way down to, through verse 6 of chapter 6 this morning. Now, for the sake of some who may not have been with us on this journey, the first and biggest takeaway that we get from the book of Galatians is this right here. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we believe that, right? Yeah. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, if you recall, to address a a deadly false teaching that was gaining some traction in the early church, namely that a person needs not only faith in Jesus to be saved, but also needs to follow a number of Jewish rules and laws and customs and traditions in order to be saved. And so this false teaching was Jesus plus good works equals salvation. 
And that was a, a real corruption of the true gospel. And Paul says that in this letter in multiple ways. This is what he communicates to us. Salvation, a sinner in a personal relationship with the only holy living God forever is always going to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Amen? That's the message. So after two chapters of introducing himself and and largely biographical information in chapters 1 and 2, followed by two chapters of heavy teaching where Paul lays out proofs for why the Jesus plus nothing gospel is the true gospel, he in the last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, gives us the the so what, the, the, the practical application. Here's where a relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus is going to take you. And he, he hits on a number of practical issues in chapters 5 and 6. In verse 1 of chapter 5, we read these words. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We say amen. amen. Yes, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We have been set free forever from a rule-keeping saves relationship with God. And that's glorious good news for us. We don't have to try to earn God's love. Aren't you glad that you don't have to do that today? That you're already loved by Him more than, than you can ever even begin to comprehend. Even if you have eternity, which you will, to try to figure that out. You'll never know how much you're loved by Him. In fact, the real truth is that that, that God has lavished his love on us through Jesus so that we are now free to live that law of love, love through faith in Jesus, out of our lives. If you look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5, we read these words. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those were words of Jesus, weren't they? Yeah. Well, then Paul goes on in chapter 5 telling the Galatians and us that in order to live uh, free and to love God and others as Jesus did and is still doing, we must draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, through our faith in Jesus. We can never live out this law of of love in our own strength or by our own hard work, our own good efforts. The Holy Spirit must, as we yield to him, transform our hearts and our minds and our characters so that we will become more accurate reflections of the person of Jesus. And we get that beginning in verse 16 of chapter 5. And this is ground we went over last time together. But just to help us get a running start at where we'll be today, would you follow along as I read for us beginning at verse 16, chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And if you remember last time, we talked about the fact that the Christian life is really a war, isn't it? It is a battle. You put your faith and trust in Jesus and you step onto a battlefield. And, and really, verses 17, verse 17 captures that. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit... First, you're walking by the Spirit. Now, verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God because their heart does not belong to Jesus, right? This is what you do when you just do life on your own. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You can't write a law against these things. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we are led by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul gives us, by the Holy Spirit here, four directives, and we see them near the top of your note page. Walk by the Spirit, verse 16. Be led by the Spirit, verse 18. Live by the Spirit, verse 25. And keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25. Four commands that are are meant to impress on us that we will never live truly free or love God or others really well unless we're living fully dependent upon who? Upon the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, it, it couldn't be more clear. In fact, that fourth directive in verse 25, in those words, keep in step with the Spirit, Paul likens us to being soldiers in an army. And the Holy Spirit of God is our commander, and we follow his orders. We keep in step with him. We march in step to him as we submit our wills to his. He calls the shots. We do the following. We keep in step with him. And as long as we do that, Paul says, this life in Jesus works, and it works really great. It won't be easy because we're in a war. We're in a war with our own flesh, our own sin nature. We're in a war with Satan. But it works great when the Holy Spirit leads and we follow. Then and only then, the character of our Lord Jesus can express itself consistently in us, what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. Again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that all? No, there's many more besides that. Against such things there is no law. This is the character of Jesus. If these virtues are consistently flowing out of our lives, brothers and sisters, we don't need rules, do we? We don't need laws because these are laws unto themselves. And then all of that brings us today to some new ground. The last verse of chapter 5 and the first six verses of chapter 6. Allow me to introduce these to you as you follow along in your Bible. Paul says, in light of all of this, the, the spirit leading your life, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his, there's a nursery worker that is very challenged right now, right? <laughs> oh, man. Lord, help this little one, whoever, whatever's going on. 
man. Oh, maybe we're going to, maybe this is where we're headed. <laughs> we're praying for you. All right. Verse 3 again. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Well, that's going to be the section that we're going to share together this morning. And, and since the Holy Spirit wrote this for us, we just call out to him, don't we? Holy Spirit, bring this to life for us. Don't let this just be words that we hear, but may they be truths that we can, can do by your working in us. So on your note page, Paul is going to break out two specific places where our Holy Spirit-directed life can practically reveal itself or show itself. We'll be able to confront pride in our lives if we're spirit-led. And second, we will be able to come to the aid of a sinning brother or sister in Jesus. If we walk by, are led by, live by, and keep in step with the Spirit, all those things we just read in chapter 5, then we'll be able to first kill the number one spiritual enemy in every Christian's life, and we'll be able to carry, uh, pick up and carry each other when sin uh, comes in and, and, and takes one of us down. Those two places are we want to spend some time. We'll be able to first kill that number one spiritual enemy in our life, which is pride, right? Would anybody disagree with that? I don't think we would. Pride is at the center of everything that is opposed to God. And we know what this feels like. It's an enemy that we do battle with constantly. You do. I do. We do so daily. Pride. Verse 26 let us not become conceited. What's another word for conceited? Proud. Provoking one another, envying one another. Now, by the way, just kind of as a little sidebar here, if you're wondering why verse 26 sits at the end of chapter 5 instead of perhaps being verse 1 of chapter 6, where it probably should be, it's because while the, the verses in our Bible are all God-inspired. They're Holy Spirit-inspired truth. The chapter and verse numbers are not inspired. Did you know that? You're, you're aware of that, right? Yeah? Th those were added several hundred years after God gave us his word, and they were added to help us to study the Bible together, to, to, to reference it together, to turn to the same places and talk about the same things. And so they were added... Um, sometime 100, several hundred years after the original text was given, but sometimes, not very often, but sometimes those who did this work of giving us the chapters and the verses didn't always catch the flow or maybe catch the transition uh, exactly right. And from my perspective, this would be one of those places where this happens. If we're led by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's verse 25 of chapter 5. That really ought to close out chapter 5 because it closes out a thought. And then comes verse 26, which probably should be verse 1 of chapter 6, as Paul offers now some practical help uh, for ways that the Holy Spirit-led life is going to make a difference for us. Certainly a chapter break uh, in the wrong spot, that's not a deal breaker. But just in case you were wondering, 
And so now I'll get back off that rabbit trail and onto the main trail, okay? Just, just in case you were wondering why we didn't pick that up last time. Well, there was a reason. It belongs here in this section. So let us not become conceited or proud, provoking one another, envying one another. I doubt any of us are surprised that it is precisely at this point that Paul would issue a warning to us to be on guard against pride when it comes to living out a life that will honor God and be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pride is a spirit-led life killer, isn't it? It really is. Because the presence in us of conceit or pride instantly means that our heart and our attention is focused where? It's focused on self, isn't it? And not on the Holy Spirit. It reveals a heart that's being self-led and not Holy Spirit-led. Now, in the context of the letter, Paul here is probably thinking about the Judaizers, those false teachers with their false gospel of of legalism and rule-keeping so that you could earn your salvation. Man, that is a pride promoter, isn't it? If you're thinking about it. Because it's all about what I do. It's all about what, what I am able to accomplish that will impress God and cause him to want to love me. It's all about what I do, not what God has done for me through faith in Jesus. Any salvation by good works belief system automatically places the focus on self, doesn't it? It automatically does it. To say that another way, legalism leads to individualism. Not to one anotherism. Not to thinking about God or others, but thinking about self. So back in chapter 5, verse 13, we just read it a moment ago, we learned that our faith in, in Jesus alone frees us up it, because we're, we're saved by grace, by the grace of God, and not by our performance for God. We are free to take our eyes off of ourselves and to love others, to love God and to love others inside and outside the church. We are freed up to do that. But pride, pride doesn't let you do that. Pride keeps you focused on yourself. And pride is a relationship destroyer because it really is all about me. It's about me. Paul is saying in verse 26 those very truths. Let us not become conceited. Let us not become proud, brothers and sisters, provoking one another, envying one another. He's warning the Galatians and us. There's no room for one another if pride is present. It's only good at promoting individualism. What Paul's really saying here is if we're walking in step with the heart of Jesus, if we're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, we will never think, I'm better than you and I'll prove it. Provoking. Or you're better than me and I resent that. Envying. But we will think, you are my brother, you are my sister, and it is my joy, it is my privilege to serve you out of a love for you and out of a love for my God. The self-absorbed legalism of pride knew nothing of this kind of spirit-led freedom. When Paul wrote the church family in Philippi, he told them the very same thing, but he told them a little bit differently. So let me just share this thought with you. It's a passage you know fairly well, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and following. We'll put them up on the screen for you, but how do they read? 
do nothing from what? Selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from the place of pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. There's a place for thinking about our stuff, but also to the interests of others. And then come these beautiful words, verse verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we say, thank you, Lord. Amen and amen. Only the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, can reproduce Jesus' self-giving heart in us. The humility that kills pride, that, that sucks that provoking, envying dead air out of the room so that pride will suffocate. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. When self shrinks, then those around us become more important to us. And we become less important. They become more significant. Philippians 2.3 again, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as what? More significant than you. We are all only blood-bought sons and daughters of the king, and we have no grounds for boasting or pride of any kind, just a humble gratitude and a desire to reflect the heart of Jesus when we're spirit-led. Are you, am I, Holy Spirit-led today? Well, one way we can answer that question is simply to say, how important are other people to me? How much do other people in my church family, in my circle, how much do they matter to me? What am I willing to do for them, give up for them? How can I serve them? We can answer this question fairly easily. How important are other people to me? It's with that kind of a heart, that kind of a questioning heart, that Paul says we can care for a brother or a sister who is caught up in the web of some entangling sin. It's number two there on your note page. If we walk by, if we're led by, if we live by, and if we keep in step with the Spirit, then we will be able to not only kill our number one enemy, which is pride, but we'll also be able to pick up and carry our fallen. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We'll stop right there. So what's the situation? What's the situation that Paul is bringing up to the Galatians, putting it in front of us here as well? Well, we have a brother, we have a sister, a fellow Jesus lover like ourselves who has been tripped up in their walk with Jesus by some sin. What do we do? What do we do when our brother or sister in Jesus does a face plant like that? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? 
Yeah, we're supposed to restore them. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. The proud legalism mentality of the Judaizers would be quick to, to condemn the one who did that, the, the point the finger and keep the score and all of that. And Paul says, oh, no, you, 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 you're not. That's not you. You are spirit-led. You are spirit-led, Galatians. You are spirit-led, IBCers. You help pick up your fallen brother or sister. That's what you do. The words caught and transgression are important for us here because they let us know what kind of sin is actually in view here in this moment. The word caught, for instance, it was used to describe a bird or an animal that was suddenly entangled in a, in a snare. The bird certainly didn't plan on or expect to be uh, caught, but they got caught. It happened. Uh, this brother or sister has been caught in a, a sin, surprised or suddenly entrapped by a sin in a way that they were not expecting. And if you carry a King James Bible around, the, the King James rendered this part of the verse overtaken by a fault. And that's the idea. It's trying to capture this idea of a snare or something that caught the person off guard. The image gains even more traction with the second word, transgression. Paul uses that here, and it means to stumble or slide off of a slippery path unexpectedly key word there in other words Paul here is thinking not about the person who is in some long entrenched ongoing secret practice of sin we have a responsibility to those persons as well our brothers and sisters in this case though are not in that place this is not the hard-hearted resolve and determination I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sin because I want to do it rather this is this is someone who who fails to to be on guard and, or, or maybe flirts with a temptation that they foolishly think that they can handle. And, and this is a friend who in that moment is living in his or her own strength, not spirit-led, and it results in a sinful crash. A good example of this might come out of the life of Peter the night before Jesus was crucified when Peter and the other disciples were gathered with Jesus in in a room and they shared a meal together. Uh, in that moment, Peter is, is filled with pride. If you recall the moment, he, he boasts and he says, hey, um, all, he says to Jesus, all the other disciples here with you right now, they, they may bail on you, they may cut and run, but Jesus, you can count on Peter. I won't do that. I won't. And you're chuckling because you know the rest of the story, don't you? But this is the very attitude that we're warned about in chapter 5, verse 26. Peter is reflecting this pride, this, this conceit. And, of course, we know how, it's, how it ended up for him. He denies Jesus not once or twice, but three times that night, doesn't he? That he even knows Jesus. The sin of pride had taken him, tripped him up unexpectedly and and we know that he wasn't looking to do that that wasn't his plan but it happened and we know what it feels like because we've all been there haven't we we know what this feels like we've stepped onto that slippery path sin has crouched at our door and it's hidden like a snare and before we knew it we were caught up in it we were tripped in it and down we went and that's the situation that Paul is thinking about here and when that happens, according to verse 1, 
who is to help this sin-tripped brother or sister? Who's supposed to help? We are. But, but it's even more specific, to, specific than that. It says a spiritual believer, right? A spiritual brother or sister is to step in in this moment. The person best equipped to help a fallen follower is one who Paul says is spiritual. Now, he's already told us what that is. That's those who are what? Walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, are living by the Spirit, and are keeping in step with the Spirit. Those would be the spiritual. They're reflecting the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Picking up a sin-tripped brother or sister is not the job reserved for super saints. And that is what we must hear in this moment. The spiritual people in verse 1 are ordinary lovers of Jesus like you and me who are relying on the extraordinary enabling power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. We're walking in step with the Spirit. Are we perfect? No. Are we without any sin in our own lives? No way. Are we Spirit-led? Hopefully so, because then it puts us in a position to be able to respond. Let me say this another way. Bearing each other's sin burdens is not a job that only the spiritually mature are supposed to do. Maturity in our Christian life, yours and mine, depends on many things. The the time we've known Jesus, our, our training and the study that we've been able to to, to have the good teachers, maybe that we've been able to sit under, uh, self-discipline. There are many factors that contribute to our maturity in Jesus. And we're all at different points along that continuum of maturity right now in this room. We're all along that spectrum. Being spiritual, though, what Paul is referring to here is not like that. It's, it, it, it's, it's not... It's not this point in time. It's, it's, a, it's a state of being unrelated to time or to our maturity. We can be spiritual at times in our Christian life, and unfortunately we can be what? Very unspiritual at times as well. At any moment in our life, from the moment of salvation till the day that we step into heaven, we are either spiritual, walking by the Spirit, or we are fleshly, walking in the power of our own strength, our own sinful nature. Right now, I am either spirit-filled or I am Tim-filled right this moment. And the same is true for you. So any believer, as they are maturing in Jesus, can be a spiritual believer who helps a sin-tripped brother or sister. Are, Are we following? Are you tracking with me with this thought? Right, again, the idea being that, that if we're walking by and we're led by and we're living by and, and we're keeping in step with the Spirit, we have a responsibility to help each other when it comes to uh, those who have fallen as a result of some sin in their life. We come to that fellow believer, we come alongside of them, and we help them. That's our responsibility. It's not saved for Pastor Tim or Brandon or an elite few in this church family This is something we all get to do. So what do the spiritual do for their sin-tripped friend? You already told me this. We restore them, don't we? We help to restore them. 
Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Restoration. What does it mean to restore? What does that mean? Yeah, it means to make new or to to return back something that has perhaps been broken, return it back to its original condition. In Paul's day, this word restore was actually the, the word used for setting a broken bone. This was the word that Paul drew upon to give us this picture. In Matthew chapter 4, it's the word used to mend a torn fishing net. The spiritual believer gets the awesome privilege of partnering with God in the restoration process of another sin-damaged brother or sister. That's the, that's the, that's the thought. The restoring process. Wow. Well, that, that, that deserves a whole morning all to itself, what that process looks like. But just some of the steps in that process would certainly include helping our sin-tripped friend recognize their sin because sometimes we don't see it and we need someone to point it out for us. We help them confess that sin to the Lord. We help them repent of it, to turn from it, uh, from that course that they've been on. We encourage them to repair perhaps any damaged relationships that have come as a result of the sin that that, that was in their life. And, and then we help them to accept and rest in God's forgiveness. And if you stop and think about it, Jesus had to do all of those things with Peter when Peter went off the path there that night before the cross. It's what we're called to do. And all of that gets done, according to the end of verse 1, with gentleness and humility. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's a, that's a call to humility. It's both interesting and I believe not an accident that gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. If you go back up to chapter 5, verse 23. When a friend of ours is in a sin pile of their own making... We go to them with gentleness. We don't go to them with a club. We don't go to them with a a pointed, condescending finger or an I told you so. We go to them with tenderness, don't we? That's the call. That's the instruction. Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, he said to him on one occasion, gently instruct in the hope that God will grant repentance. Gently instruct. Don't go in there like a wrecking ball and pound on your friend and point your finger. You love on them in a gentle way. 2 Timothy 2.25, if you need the reference. And joined to our gentleness is humility. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Each of us know that we're not immune to the very same temptations that might have taken out our friend. In fact, if we think otherwise, we're on dangerous ground, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul sounded this warning. He says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you what? That you don't fall. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Well, that's the same thing as saying, but watch yourself or you too may be tempted, right? The words keep watch here in this verse, uh, it's an archery term. Paul borrowed a word from the archery realm. And it pictures an archer who's pulled back the bow and he is so focused on the target. 
It's just this laser beam of focus. And so that's the call. That You watch out. You be that diligent. You be that focused so that that sin in your brother's life, your sister's life, doesn't end up taking you out. Be on guard. Watch. And that, that really calls for humility, a recognition. Man, but for the grace of God, I could go there too. Now, It can be really difficult to know how to respond when a brother or sister falls, but there's no question we're supposed to pick them up. That's verse 1. After we pick them up, though, what do we do then? Well, we carry them. And we carry them as long as they need to be carried. And that's the second part here. If you flip your note page over, it's not enough simply to help our brother or sister turn from their sin and then leave them alone. And the reason that's true is because immediately after a spiritual deliverance, Satan oftentimes will come back and make his most severe attack, right? You've probably experienced that in your life. So the most vulnerable moment in our brother or sister's life may be that moment when we called them back and they've turned. Now we need to go with them. We need to carry with them and help them. And so we read that. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill what? The law of Christ, the law of love. The words bear and burdens, they're from Greek words that are used to refer to heavy loads that are extremely difficult to carry. That's the idea. When I think of this word, burden, I think of the cinder blocks out there on our new wall. If you've worked on Saturdays on this wall, you know how heavy those cinder blocks are. Sometimes it takes two people to lift one of those babies up there on that wall. I admire Wayne and the crew for for all the work that they're doing, but I think of those heavy cinder blocks. Well, in this context, burdens here, Paul has in mind uh, the temptations that a brother or sister could fall back into coming out of that sin that, that they've already been delivered from or restored from. And so a persistent, oppressing temptation to sin is often one of the heaviest burdens that we carry in the Christian life. And Paul puts this word bear in the present tense so that you and I will understand we are to carry with endurance for as long as our friend needs us to. We carry that burden with them. We do not stop. And when we bear one another's sin burdens, we do, verse 2, fulfill the law of Christ which is simply Paul's way of saying we fulfill the law of love. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34. In fact, can we read it aloud off the screen? Maybe it will come up on the screen. Is it there? No? There it is. Let's read it aloud right off the screen. This is Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. As Jesus has loved us, so we love each other. How has Jesus loved us? Well, we just read about it in Philippians chapter 2. He loved us humbly. He loved us sacrificially all the way to the cross. He gave his very self so that our sin burden could be taken off of us forever. That's how he loved us. Obviously, we can't love that fully but he is our example I bear your sin burden with you you bear your sin burden with me as long as there is a need because you love me because I love you 
The law of Christ is the law of love. And when we live out that law, it's the only law we need because everything else flows out of that. Look back again at chapter 5, verse 14. We read it a moment ago. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, do that and you will fulfill the whole law. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Verses 3 and 4 are now the third time that Paul has warned us about pride, right? This is the third time. We got that in chapter 5, verse 26 a moment ago. We read it again at the end of verse 1 of chapter 6. And now one more time. Why do we get three warnings to look out for pride in our life in just this tiny short section? Why? Because it's our number one enemy. And we deal with it every day, don't we? We deal with it every day. And the Holy Spirit knows this. He knows that you and I cannot help restore the sin-tripped brother or sisters in our lives or help carry their burden if we are full of ourselves, not spirit-led. And so we're encouraged to carefully test our lives, every aspect of our life. When we do this, we don't compare ourselves to anybody else. We We just compare ourselves to the one standard, which is Jesus, right? That's who we compare ourselves to. Am I living out the life of Jesus? When we do that, when we test ourselves against that standard alone, we'll discover that anything that we have to boast about in our life is only because God by his spirit has made it possible. So all boasting goes back to who? To God alone. We did nothing. God did it all. And so alone in him do we boast. It takes us out of the picture, and that's exactly the kind of heart that's ready and willing to bear sin burdens for others. But then we get to verse 5, and it seems to contradict verse 2. Verse 2 says, bear each other's burdens, and yet verse 5 says, for each will have to do what? Bear his own load. Now, what's, what's happening there? Well, what do you make of that? It's actually a wonderful bit of wise counsel from the Holy Spirit to you and me. While verse 2 refers to an overwhelming burden that, that a person can't carry themselves, they need, they need help, a sin burden, the word load in verse 5 is actually the word for a Roman soldier's day pack. That's the word that Paul uses. That pack was something small. It was something light. And in it, the soldier carried his, his own personal effects. And so that, that, that pack belonged to that soldier. It was part of how he cared for his daily needs and his responsibilities. And he was expected to carry that pack himself. Nobody was going to do that for him. It's the difference between a little day pack and a cinder block. Okay? That's the difference. No comparison. And so Paul is saying we're to bear together that which is too heavy for one to handle alone sin burdens, but the general obligations of life that we all have to contend with, we each bear those ourselves. So this becomes a warning 
to us to draw good boundaries with regards to our burden bearing. And especially is this true if you happen to be a, a, a Christian whose tendency is to take on everybody else's cares and, and feel like you need to help them and fix them. Uh, Paul's saying, boy, you need to be careful. Let your friend carry the light stuff. You help them with the really heavy stuff, the sin issues. So draw clear boundaries or you're going to run yourself ragged trying to help everybody and you're going to lead others to rely on you when they really should be doing some of this stuff on their own. Love the practical in a very practical way. That's the admonition. And then Paul wraps all this up with this encouragement, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And this is actually an instruction to the person who's been helped by you, who's been restored by that brother or sister that you have helped carry their sin load. This is an instruction to them. Paul says, listen, you've been loved on by your brother, by your sister. They have helped you greatly uh, to break free from that sin burden. It's only right that you would give back. You would refresh. You would bless. You would encourage. You would thank. You would listen to the Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to show you how you can share your good things with the one who has shared so much with you. That's the call. And again, it's just very practical. It's very down-to-earth instruction. You've been helped. Boy, help back. Express that gratitude. Restoration of a sin-tripped brother or sister. Man, it's hard work. If you've ever done it, you know this, right? It is hard work. And it's definitely not for the proud. Definitely not for the self-righteous. Only the Holy Spirit-filled who are humble need apply for the job. It is a daunting responsibility. It can be frustrating. It can be incredibly messy. But it's what we do. And it's what we do. We, we pick up our friend. We carry them. We carry them gently. We carry them humbly. As long as they need us to do that because we love them and because, more importantly, we love Jesus. Right? Several years ago, an angry man rushed into a museum in Amsterdam with a knife and repeatedly slashed one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings. A short time later, another man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with a hammer and began to smash one of Michelangelo's marble masterpieces. These two cherished works of art were badly damaged. But let me ask you, What do you think the museum officials did? Did they throw those incredible works of art out because they've been damaged? No. What did they do? They restored them, didn't they? That's exactly what they did. They used the most qualified people they can find, and they worked with care and precision for as long as they needed to do that in order to repair or restore those treasures. Are you... Am I ready to be used by the Holy Spirit to restore God's sin-damaged masterpieces when he brings them into our circle? Are we ready to do that? To bear one another's burdens? To pick each other up and hold each other up and do that as long as we need to do that to fulfill the law of Jesus, which is the law of love. 
We will be ready to do that, brother or sister, if we walk by the Spirit, if we're led by the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, and if we keep in step with the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. And as we pray to you, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the practical nature of it, how it helps us to to do life in you. And, And in this moment, I simply want to seek your face for all of us in this room who know you and love you. As we've been talking, it's possible that a friend's face, a brother or sister's face has been repeatedly coming into view. One who has been taken by a snare. They've fallen off the path by virtue of some sin that they carelessly entered into. Perhaps you have given us this image, this person, so that we might respond. That we would pursue. That we would come after them. If that is what you have done this morning in the hearts of some of us, may we not rest until we have done what you would tell us to do by the power of your spirit, to go to them, to help carry their burden for as long as they need us to do that. If we would be able to allow to do that, Father, that would be a great, a great honor, a great privilege that you would be extending to us. We would humbly ask you, though, to fill us with your spirit so we could do that work well and, and really love well our brother or sister in Jesus. We know that pride is our enemy, and so we ask you to enable us to kill pride as we remain filled by you. To the end that you'd be glorified, we appeal to you in the name of Jesus. And all God's people say,